Powered by Cooper Parry, the rebels of accountancy, this is the No Bull Podcast. No Bull Podcast. Our purpose, to disrupt, lead and make life count. We help entrepreneurial, like-minded businesses to thrive across the UK. Your podcast host, Steve Whittle. And today, my guest is Tim Foster, who is the Head of Operations at the FA. And we're going to be talking about diversity and inclusion. And I'm really hoping that by the end of the podcast, you'll have a better understanding of what could be achieved if we really take a good, hard look at what diversity and inclusion means. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to look at your own organisations and think about making some changes if you need to. We're talking to Tim because recently the FA have brought out a football leadership diversity code where they're bringing in principles and pledges to improve their equality, diversity and inclusion. I'm also joined by April Bembridge, who is the Chief People Officer at Cooper Parry. She's working really hard to improve our diversity and inclusion and making sure that we're doing everything right. I know that working at Cooper Parry, I thought we were getting it right. I, was, I would put my hand on my heart and said, hey, I think we're nailing it. But as we scratched the surface, I started to realise that actually we could be doing things better. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're, we're doing things good, but it, we could always be doing better. So without further ado, I'd like to start off by introducing April. Thanks, Steve. Uh, yeah, huge, huge topic. And um, I'm, I'm really excited to be talking about it. I'm actually also really nervous and scared. Um, and I'll put that out there right now. So it's the first time I've done a podcast where I felt quite anxious. And the reason for that is because it is a really sensitive subject. And I think we're all, well, not we're all, but I, you know, we're scared to talk about it. Um, we're scared of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, but we but have great intent. So I fundamentally believe it's a topic that we have to talk about. We have to stop it becoming taboo. And yeah, like you said, make it not even a conversation. It's just the way the world works. But we're not there yet. We're a long way off that. And so I am keen to explore what, uh, what, what Tim's doing at the FA. I think there'll be synergies with many businesses in terms of what we can do. But yeah, I'm a little bit nervous, I'll be honest. Wowzer, I've, I've never, never had anyone come on and say that they're worried or they're scared. So this, <laughs> this is going to be brilliant. Um, and Tim, I'd like you to introduce yourself. At Cooper Parry, our purpose is to disrupt, lead and make life count. So Tim, I'd love to know what you do to disrupt, lead and make life count. Thanks, Steve, and uh, hello to you. And hi, April. Um, April, please, please don't be anxious. Um, I'm sure it'll be it'll be just fine. Um, so, Steve, you, you know you've known me going back quite a long time, and it won't be a, a secret to you that my lifelong passion has always been in helping people to become more active. The benefits of movement and exercise are just enormous, both physically and psychologically. And for me, I've always found it really rewarding to help people engage in exercise, you know, and in doing so to lead happier, healthier lives. I'm lucky that football is such a massive platform to be able to influence this across the whole of England. So I hope I'm contributing to this, I guess, by helping to grow football participation in England, by disrupting traditional thinking and helping to ensure the game truly is providing playing opportunities for all. And by for all, I mean 
regardless of, for example, ability, gender, ethnicity, or social background. Um, for example, a project I'm really proud of that's been taking place over the last three years or so has been the setting up of a framework for our County FA's corporate governance with a focus on modernising their structures. So, in other words, helping their decision-making bodies become more diverse so that they can best understand, empathise with and connect with their communities to deliver these equal opportunities for participation on the ground. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm intrigued as to why DNI and d &I is important to the FA. It's, it's becoming such a hot topic in business in general. It's on you know, everyone's minds and, and the question is on everyone's lips about what they're doing. But it would be really interesting to understand from a, from a sporting perspective. And, and as you say, particularly from our national game, why, why does it matter to the FA? Yeah, thanks, April. It's a great question. Um, the, the answer is, you know, England's population is diverse and this diversity is growing. And I believe this diversity is one of our nation's greatest strengths. So it's important that our national game reflects this diversity and provides equal opportunities for all to get involved in football. And when I say to get involved in football, you know, I mean that at leadership levels, within leadership roles in the game, you know, within administrative roles within the game or in playing the game itself. And Tim, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested because for me, when I look at football, I look at it outwardly to the untrained eye and it seems like quite a diverse sport anyway um, and that there is a lot of diversity and inclusion compared to a lot of other sports. Um, and so it feels like whether intentionally or not, the FA is already leading on that. And the fact that it, it seemingly to me is, um, yeah, I think I think it's really interesting that, that you are approaching that as something that needs needs to be addressed and therefore will only lead the way further, in my view. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's great to hear that there's some acknowledgement out there for some of the great work that's being done, but we, we can do more and we must do more. Um, you know, and we've got our own benchmarks. We, I, I don't think we should compare ourselves against, you know, other sports or, you know, such like we're the, the national game you know there are millions of people who participate in football in England on a weekly basis you know there's over half a million volunteers who support the grassroots game um, you know so we have a moral obligation to do the right thing sure. um, so you know leading is where we'd like to be but doing the right thing is where we must be so although we have done a lot of great stuff um, we will continue to do more and, and we must do more. You know, we're, we're not where we want to be in terms of diversity and inclusion. We've got great plans in place, but we, we need to consistently review these plans and, and do more. And we will. Brilliant. I think that's a key word, isn't it? The must, actually. It's, it's no longer a, you know, maybe we should do something. I think everyone has to sit up and say, it's not enough that we accidentally do some things or it's not enough to you know be playing at this this is this has got to be top of the agenda we've got to be really intentional with it now yeah and what we do has got to be for the long term it's got to be sustainable it's got to stick it's got to be permanent talking about a theme of a month that's a focus now and then it mm -hmm. dies away so what we do we have to be clever enough to make sure that the change that we make embeds equality, diversity and inclusion permanently 
for the long term. So the hard work goes in now creating these really strong foundations to deliver a more diverse game in the future. The No Bull Podcast. I think, um, I mean, I think that's really interesting. I know that uh, I'm trying to equate it to a, a business now. So when we look at um, Cooper Parry, and I, I'm limited about my knowledge of, in, of businesses, but, but at Cooper Parry, I, I joined this company thinking it was really diverse, and I was joining an organization that was leading the way. And um, I still think that's true, but when you scratch the surface, there's things that we could be doing so much better. And so I liked what you said about constantly reviewing and um april you started something um here at cooper didn't you to try and get a better understanding yeah absolutely um it it and i'll be again i'll be honest we we did think we were pretty good at it um it's easy to to look on the surface and 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 see and hear things and think we're doing okay at this and we don't discriminate and we don't exclude people it's only when you really start digging into the language that you use the you know, the words that you put in a job advertisement, the way that you interview people, how accessible we make our workspace, how accessible we make our learning. It, I could go on and on and on and on. That you start to realise that, yeah, we could do a lot better at this. And we, we need to learn more. We need to educate ourselves. We need to ask questions. We need to ask uncomfortable questions and have uncomfortable conversations. And that's that's kind of what we're going through now is a process of starting to have some of those uncomfortable conversations so you know I said I was a bit anxious about this um, and, and purely from the perspective of that I think I think we need to be I think we need to step outside of our comfort zones and be brave with this because any topic that is that is worth its salt is probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable and we can only disrupt and lead and make life count ourselves, which is our, is our strap line that we that we live by, if we put ourselves out there and be prepared to, you know, make some mistakes. So I think that the, the biggest thing for me in terms of our you know strategy in inverted commas, we, we've never been a company that's big on having lots of policies and strategies in place, but we need to be organised and coordinated in how we approach this. And, and a big part of that is being prepared to make mistakes. And I think for me not judging each other for those mistakes you know honest honest mistakes that are made with good intent we will all do them i have i've have done many i'm sure i will blunder my way through this at certain points say the wrong thing and people will shout at the the, the screen as they're listening and you know only recently i put a post out on linkedin responding to some feedback that we'd had on a on a, on a new starter welcome where we'd, we'd use the terminology to welcome these guys and actually there were guys and girls on the new starter done with really good intent um but we're you know every day is every day is a learning curve in this stuff and so we're trying to take all that feedback really graciously listen to it learn from it change adapt evolve so that that's our strategy right now is to is to listen to evolve to adapt to try to to make mistakes and um it you know not do our best because we need to do more than do our best we need to be more intentional than that but but not be afraid to, to trip up because it's going to happen and nothing will change if we don't allow that to happen yeah and and, and april you know the first step in solving a problem is talking about the problem isn't it right um and and you're right you know this is an emotive area and some people are uncomfortable having these conversations but you have to you know we won't take the steps forward we need unless we have those uncomfortable conversations unless we put a spotlight Absolutely. on this um 
you know, so, you know, effort equals reward, I think. So we've got to be open, we've got to be honest, and we've got to be transparent. You know, and I yes. think if we can do all of that and have the conversations, then progress will happen. Because I do believe, you know, the vast majority of people are extremely sensible um, and understand that we need to do more. So I I know that the FA have had a lot of uncomfortable uh, conversations and that's why you're making the changes that you're making. But what what does the utopia look like? You know, what just from the FA's point of view, what will you achieve uh, by being more inclusive, what do you hope it will look like in the future? Yeah. So, well, I guess, you know, what what will the FA achieve by by this focus, you know, is, is the first question here. And for sure, communities u- united are stronger than communities divided. And football pitches can provide for these non-formal social encounters between people from all different social, cultural, ethnic backgrounds you know, creating this real opportunity to pull diverse communities together. So football has got an unparalleled ability to help make this happen. And there are also, you know, as we grow participation in football in England, there are massive benefits that can be measured. You know, there are huge socioeconomic benefits of participation in our national game. You know, recent surveys that we've done, studies that we've done, the founder football contributes well over £10 billion worth of benefits to society in England. For example, um, you know, the health benefits of people playing regular grassroots football generates around £43.5 million of cost savings to the NHS each year. And people who play football, you know, report significantly high levels of general health, happiness, confidence and trust compared to those who do not play sport. So, you know, there's the bigger picture here of people, more people playing football is good for society as a whole. Um, And we want to build on this socio-economic impact, for example, by helping to improve the physical and mental health of the nation through football. But most importantly, in particular in areas of ED&I, you know, the creating of equal opportunities for everybody to play is just morally and simply the right thing to do. Our game must be inclusive for all, and we must remove barriers that prevent participation in the national game. Wowza, yeah, that's that's really impressive, and um, I want to talk about the barriers as well. But before we we ask the question about what what barriers we've got to take down, I'd be really interested, Ape. I know you can't speak for every company, but in in your view, you know what you know what do um, do we think that companies get at, get out of getting this right and what can we learn from the FA? Well, you know, it's not dissimilar really to, to some of the things that, that Tim's spoken about by less, less of those kind of good for society, um, which I think is, is, is a really great point actually, Tim, by the way, and I, I, I'd love to kind of dig on that a little bit more in a moment, but you know, the more diverse our, work, our workforces and any business's workforces, that, that also breeds a much more diverse client base or customer base um, because you're appealing to a much broader spectrum of people. And the, 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 the difference in thought, in ideas um, that come from the richness of diversity. And, and, and you know, I mentioned before about um, in terms of seemingly outwardly what football looks like and, and it's important to remember isn't it that diversity is about so much that we can't see and um 
you know, so how we how we foster a, diver, a diverse workforce without just focusing on all the obvious things, um, but all those all those invisible things and you know, invisible illness is a, is a, a you know something that I'm quite passionate about myself, but. How do we encourage more people with invisible illness, for example, to feel confident enough to speak openly about that and to bring their true selves to work in a different way? And that not to limit their opportunities, not to limit their ability to apply for a job or their um, their desire to apply for a job. So the, the more that we can encourage a much more diverse workforce that feels truly inclusive, people feel they can truly bring their real selves and, and, and still belong, is just going to create a a massive richness of input and and that can only benefit a business how can it not powered by cooper parry the no bull podcast i've got a question for both of you i don't know who wants to take this on first but you know um how do we decide who to include in our diversity and inclusion for example who decides um, what is right and what is wrong on you know, even on numbers how do we know when we've um, I guess I'm not wording this question very well but what I'm trying to say is like for the moment it's LGBTQ month right now and the internet is awash with companies parading out um, the LGBTQ community um, on their feed and it's they're doing it this month because it's the month to celebrate it but why why is it not every month? Who decides, you know, what should be included and what's not? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Steve. You know, I, th- I think the point here is that, you know, football must represent the communities that it serves. Okay, and I think that's the simple premise from which you have to look at this. You know, we've got to be inclusive and we've got to represent the communities that you serve. And those communities should be able to play the game. But I think a big problem here is that of blind spots, you know, and the acknowledgement that people who are on decision-making bodies who can impact, you know, accessibility to the game may have blind spots and unconscious incompetencies. And it's really important that the decision-making bodies engage with people from diverse backgrounds. And when I say diversity, I'm not just talking about gender diversity or ethnic diversity, although, of course, that is really important. But diversity of experience, background, education, community, age, belief, you know, the list goes on. The more diverse the collective thinking is of those decision making bodies, the smaller those blind spots will become and the more able those bodies will be able to engage the diverse communities that they represent. So, you know, you're talking here about less visible um, potential discriminations. Um, and our county FAs do a great job of reaching out to and engaging communities, for example, in lower socioeconomic groups or for people um, with disabilities. We can always do more and engage in these communities remains a huge priority. Um, you know, for example, we work closely with the Football Foundation who prioritise those lower socioeconomic areas in terms of ensuring they've got facilities on which to play that are great quality and are also affordable. We're lucky the football as a sport is relatively low in terms of barriers to entry, particularly cost barriers, but we have to ensure the quality facilities are there for people to play on and the football is affordable for all. And 
we've got a number of initiatives supporting the disability game. Um, you know, a highlight of my calendar is the Disability Cup. And I'm looking forward to the finals this July, where I'll see teams competing in the finals, which will include wheelchair football, cerebral palsy, partially sighted blind and amputee teams. That There are many opportunities for people to participate. And our Football Your Way programme is a network of centres across the country that provide opportunities to play, whether you choose to play mainstream football, pan-disability or impairment-specific football. And all of this is openly available at England Football and on the FA.com. I, I literally was, my head was, if you could see me, my head was nodding furiously like one of those dogs in a car. Um, I mean, just everything really resonating there, Tim, with what you were saying. And, I, and I, this is why football, you know, sport in general, it can be such a powerful, like, magical gateway for change because, you know, we're talking about grassroots football here in particular and not only creating that diversity within the social environments and, 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 and in, encouraging inclusivity in general, what that's doing is, is teaching those children that take part in that sport, they're recognising that, you know, almost with diversity, hopefully, as a byproduct, doesn't become such a big deal to them because it's just so inherent in the sport by tackling it at grassroots that they see people from all walks of life, all educational backgrounds, all socioeconomic backgrounds, as you say, that it, it, these are just people playing football together. And, and, and there's the common thread. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. And, and if we can get into children, whether that's in schools, in sports, that, that their mindset is automatically, it doesn't matter. Like it, imagine the world that that can create then because they're, they're going to be our future business leaders and owners um and so yeah there's loads that we need to do now at, at our level and, and in businesses that exist but by tackling grassroots at every avenue that's that's where real change can happen that's pretty special i think the no bull podcast i'm um, i'm hearing a lot of positive things and this is this is great my when i first um, started looking at this podcast with uh, Tim and you, April. I, I honestly thought it was going to be a bad news story. This is a problem. This is a problem, and we were just going to be handing that out. But actually, we're seeing lots of opportunity um, for good, and and the FA are doing brilliantly at this. But that's not the story. When you open up a newspaper, you listen to the news, you look at a news feed on social media, it's always we're not doing enough. Um, there's prejudice here and, and so on. So if, if that's the message that's been kicked out all the time, we're, we're not going to see much change. We're always going to see a problem. So how do we tackle, tackle that to get a better message out there? Yeah, yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right, Stephen. Clearly a lot of the, um, you know, the conversation at the moment is, is around um, diversity of ethnicity you know, in particular black and mixed heritage race um, individuals representing football, be it playing, um, managing or administrating the game. And, and that's where the, you know, conversation is focused at the moment. And as we enter the Euros, you know, you'll see that the England men's team does represent the diversity of our nation. And we're really proud of that. But that doesn't follow through at every level of football and where we have gaps are 
um, not only in in some areas in in the playing of the game, but also particularly in the leadership roles and the coaching roles um, within those with within football clubs. So you mentioned the football leadership diversity coach, Steve. You know, so that's been done specifically to help improve the diversity um, in clubs, particularly in those roles of senior leadership um, and coaching. You know, so we can start to be more inclusive and to bring in more diverse candidates into those roles because they are underrepresented in those roles. Um, you, you know, and we must do more. So in that club leadership diversity code, you'll see that we are um, looking at targets for senior leadership um, of 15% um, of appointments coming from those of a BME background or a target reflecting the local demographic and 30% of female, um, you know, in the men's pro clubs, coaching roles, appointments should be 25% from BME backgrounds, um, 10% at senior hires in coaching in the women's game, 50% of hires should be female, 15% from BME. So these are clubs that are committing and we have over 50 clubs joined up to this code now, which is a really encouraging start, you know, committing to achieving certain targets in diversity in their leadership and coaching teams. And, and I think this is where the narrative is, is because at the moment we aren't diverse enough as a rule of those leadership and coaching um, levels of the game. So this is why the code has come into place and at grassroots later this year, we're launching a version of the code for grassroots clubs, you know, and, and remember grassroots is where the majority of football gets played. You know, we're talking about, you know, 17,000 clubs, 90,000 teams, 1,100 leagues. You know, you know, the numbers are huge. So we're going to be bringing in a version um, of this code for grassroots clubs um, that we, we, we hope will move the dial further. Tim, I'm listening intently there and really interested by, and I think Steve alluded to it before around, you know, numbers and targets and, um, it, that's definitely, a, I would say, a, a Marmite subject. To quote your um, opening, Steve, that you know, people have different views on you know, whether we should have targets or not, or you know, it, it, it's just the right person for the job, irrespective um, without the targets. And we could debate all day about that. So I'm not suggesting that we do. But the, you know, we, we have to have some targets now because it, we're, because we're behind the curve, and so it's important to to, to set that in, in in to get that. Excuse me. It's important for that to get the ball rolling. I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite interested, and I think businesses could perhaps learn from this in terms of how you, how you are going about attracting, recruiting, you know, those leadership roles and those coach roles to encourage diversity. Um, because from a business perspective, we we're looking at things like you know doing blind, uh, blind applications, so no age, no name, um, no education or background, although grades for some roles are required, but no, no, no specific school or university to try and discourage people making those unconscious biases at application stage. And then similarly, the recruitment process. And I'm just wondering if, if you're doing anything different that we can learn from or, or, or take on board. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great question. So, uh, you know, we know that nobody wants tokenism. Mm -hmm. And the, what, what we want are merit-based appointments, but appointments coming from a very diverse pool. Yeah. And, and in football, what 
you know, as, as tended, to, I'm generalizing here, but what has tended to be the case here is that, you know, recruit, recruitment is made from personal networks. So, so, so give, let, let me give an example. You know, I, I, if, if, if I was working in a club, I would have a network of friends and colleagues. Um, and generally, if a vacancy comes up, you know, recommendations from those friends or colleagues would be incoming and potentially I could end up um, recruiting from that list of recommendations, which is fine. But if all my friends and colleagues are like me, mm-hmm. you know, if they have a similar background to me, if they've got similar education and experience to me, if they are of the same religion and belief and ethnicity as me, then guess what? will tend to recruit more people like me. So what we've got to do and what this code is, is, is facilitating is to have a merit based recruitment process that makes sure we move away from these personal networks and do we open up applicants more broadly for people from all walks of life so that we can have a truly diverse pool of candidates to a point from powered by cooper parry this is the no bull podcast which when we talk about diversity and our network if you like that we have to improve we talk in um we're often talking about gender and um ethic i can't even say the word we're often talking about gender and ethnicity i could say that much better are the more, <laughs> are the more obvious ones but there's yeah. less visible discriminations, and I just wondered if there's in either from the FA's point of view or from a business point of view that we uh, maybe tell the listeners what other things that we've seen. Yeah, and and this becomes a massive conversation, Steve, because you know we're talking here about discrimination, um, but 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 also. There are areas of diversity that aren't necessarily discrimination, but which are still having an adverse impact on decision-making bodies. For example, skills, life experience, very important areas of diversity to bring to decision-making bodies that help ensure that the decisions you reach and come to are the best they can be. So, you know, we're doing a tremendous amount of work at the moment. I, I, I mentioned at the start, um, a particular piece of work that had been three years in the making that I was particularly proud of um, with our county FA partners. So so our county FAs, there are 50 county FAs across England, and these are our partners who are responsible for the local governance, regulation, and development of the game. So these are the boots on the ground. The, 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 these are the organisations that you know look after the coach network, the referee network, look after teams and leagues at a local level. And uh, you know the FA is a, is a is a body that's been around a while. <laughs> you know the FA, as I'm, I'm sure you know, was founded way back in 1863. So with organisations that have been around a long time, there comes a lot of tradition. And the tradition in the FA through the County FA network has been that, you know, ultimately County FAs were started, you know, kind of back at the end of, you know, the Victorian era, you know, where sport was around amateur values, you know, County FAs were 
predominantly formed by kind of ex-public, um, you know, kind of footballers who wanted to uphold amateur values, you know, which was stuff like, you know, um, you know, it's not the winning that matters. It's the, you know, it's the taking part that counts. It's, you know, m- moving away from, um, you know, winning at all costs. Um, those kind of intrinsic amateur values of sport is where the game kind of started. And county FAs, you know, created councils and decision-making bodies based from those networks. So where we found ourselves with county FAs were that the decision-making bodies on county FAs, be it the councils or the boards when they became incorporated about 20 years ago, were traditionally dominated by older male volunteers who have the necessary spare time to commit to such duties but who probably came from generally similar backgrounds mm-hmm. and where longevity of service was encouraged, mm-hmm. creating kind of club cultures and a relative lack of diversity in backgrounds, skills, age, gender, ethnicity, and, and so on. But this is history that goes back, you know, 150 years, and this is how the game's evolved. So, so, so now we're saying, well, you know, of course we hugely value the work that these volunteers have done and remember we're talking about volunteers here people who give up their time because they love football and they do a tremendous job and have done a tremendous job in getting football into the place where it is today which is a game enjoyed by around 15 million people in England you know week in week out but they may not be tremendously diverse as decision making bodies because of that So, so, so we're at this point of change now where we're saying, of course, we want to make sure that we are moving towards a more diverse representative group of people on these decision-making bodies that represents our local communities, whilst also saying, of course, we want to retain the skills and expertise from those that have them, who have the experience <laughs> and who have helped get the game to where it is today. And it's, it's difficult, Steve, you know, because um, we don't want these core volunteers who have done a tremendous job to feel that they are no longer welcome. And I think that is a danger for some of them as, as, as we try and drive more diversity. So we have to acknowledge the history and the skills and the experience that are there whilst also bringing in more diverse people to help ensure that those decision making bodies are representative of the communities that they serve and that's where we are now the code of governance is based on the sport england code of governance for national governing bodies of sport in england that sets out a number of requirements that we've adapted for football we've actually raised the bar um you know so we've got a regional code of governance that clearly lays out how those decision making structures should be set up to ensure they are truly diverse and representing the community and able to engage with, empathise with um, those communities that they serve. But change is difficult, right? You know, we all know that. It's, it's, it's difficult to go from where we were to where we are, and we're in the middle of that right now. Change is happening, but we need to do more. We'd like some of the change to happen quicker. Um, and we're doing lots of stuff to make sure that we do deliver quicker change to become more diverse and representative of the communities that we serve. 
you're really making me smile uh, there, Tim, because I can I can feel a lot of synergies actually with with Cooper Parry, interestingly, in in the journey that it, it it's been on and is on. So, you know, it rooted also in the 1800s, um, which was was a very traditional, typical accountancy firm, um, stereotypical accountancy firm that you would expect, and made up of. Uh, a certain ilk of person and a certain academic ability and from certain backgrounds and it's been on a huge journey Cooper Parry in terms of change and continues to be on a huge journey of change however re yeah really important to 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 respect to honor the input and the value that those individuals have had that were you know okay we've not got anybody here from the 1800s still but you know we've got we've got five generations of of people within Cooper Parry and within the footballing world, there'll be five, six, you know, maybe even seven generations now of, of people. And I think what's really, what becomes really powerful is when we don't discount the value that, that those founding people and those, uh, you know, we want to create, I guess what I'm trying to say, we do want to create a diverse diversity and inclusion, but by, by, then, try, by then potentially excluding those, we're minimising the diversity that's there and the richness that they bring too. So finding a way to get those to, to meet and to marry in the middle um, and there was, there was a real I was chatting to somebody the other day there was a really interesting study around the different generations and how actually some of those the, the older generations you know born 50 60 years 70 years ago even actually there's some real similarities there with some of the gen z's that are coming through in terms of the the the, the what they want out of life and so to assume whether it's age, whether it's race, whether it's something more invisible, to make assumptions about what those different demographics want or need out of life is really dangerous. But by bringing them together, we create something really interesting. So yeah, I've just felt that there were some real, real interesting synergies there in the thinking. Yeah, and and you're right, April. And you know, within county football associations, you know, the the problem has historically been exacerbated by the fact that kind of length of service has been, you know, kind of almost encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the longer you sit on the council, um, the better, and then you might end up on the board of directors for a county FA. And, um, you know, good corporate governance structures recognize term limits as a cornerstone. And this can be a highly emotive area of conflict where personal agendas and self-protectionism have the potential to surface um, and that can be sometimes rationalized against an argument of a backdrop of declining volunteer numbers so and and, and i think this is where th this is why the change can take time because this is complex it's it's not as easy as flicking a switch you know people who have historically been involved in those decision-making bodies are hugely valued but what we need to do is just to grow those decision-making bodies so that they are more diverse and more representative of the communities that they serve. And, and in that, some people who maybe, you know, would like to be on those decision-making bodies may no longer be able to because of, for example, the imposing of term limits mm -hmm. or open and transparent recruitment processes and skills-based recruitment processes. Um, you know, so we're going through that change now and it's emotive, it's personal, it's difficult, but we're making good progress. So Steve, when you say, you know, well, 
you know you're, you're hearing lots of good stuff and you know you, you know it sounds like lots of great progress it, it is but we're not where we want to be yet you know we'd love all of our counties to be fully compliant you know with all the 65 requirements of the code of governance you know but it's not something you can do in a week or two you know it's probably one season maybe two seasons work to become code compliant because these are you know a gold standard of corporate governance principles gosh i can i can just imagine a very difficult conversation to be had with somebody who's been the head on the board for 40 years has done amazing stuff for his community his whole life is football and then we've got to go in there and say um thanks um but now you've got a term time or you're not diverse enough or there's a very difficult conversation to be had there isn't there it's it's very difficult steve you know and 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 these volunteers have done a fantastic job so it is it's really tough but you know to bring in more diverse people you have to create um the vacancies so ter- what term limits do and make sure that there's a regular refreshing of people on those decision-making bodies, which gives you the opportunity to go to a diverse pool of candidates and then based on merit and skills, you know, recruit in from that pool. And if you've got that constant feed of new talent coming through, there's your opportunity to become more diverse. But yeah, it's really tough. You know, people are passionate for some people, you know, football is their life, you know? And, and having these roles is, is, is so important, you know, not, not, you know, you or I couldn't comprehend how important it is to them. So we've got to be sensitive about this. And, um, you know, although we, you know, we are making progress and we will continue to make progress, we must acknowledge, you know, the great work that these volunteers have done over the years to get us to where we are today, as we now take this next step forward. The No Bull Podcast. With communication, um, we to make anything good happen in this subject, we need to be able to communicate effectively with each other. Now, talking about this subject is a motive, and it's so difficult, especially with the terminologies that we have to use for things. I'm always making a mistake. I used the word um, autistic the other day in a conversation, and I was slammed. Um, now, I, the way I see it, and I might see this wrong, is you have a small percentage of people with very loud voices who are professionally offended and shout the loudest. Then you have the other end of the spectrum, the people who are idiots, who, ha- who are not diverse at all. You know, they have prejudices. They don't care who hears about it. And then I think you've got a large proportion in the center who are often scared of what to say who are maybe not having the conversation because they're really worried about saying the wrong thing and offending someone and you know being attacked in some way you know verbally so how do we improve that i mean for me i think communication is a key word but it, it, communication is two-way right so you know any any good conversation is where both both parties are getting actively involved and having equal equal airtime to talk and and to listen and so for me, the, the, the critical part of communication that's, that, that we've got to nail at Cooper Parry anyway is, is really listening. Um, and yeah, there will be those people that are extremely passionate and want to be the first person to, to call somebody out when they've said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing. And you know, 
I, I try to go through life assuming that most people do things with good intent. So, so even those that, that feel, it might feel like it's, it's an attack, verbal or written, um, they have some good intent there. They're wanting to educate. And so I try, uh, try gracefully, not always successful, but try gracefully to accept that feedback and learn from it. And I, I think that's all we can do is be really open, really open to listening, really open to learning and uh, not, yeah, not try not to be afraid of getting tripped up. And I know I've said it a few times now, but I do think the, the only way that change will happen and change is painful, as we've discussed, it's it, 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 none of this is going to happen overnight. It's it's a it's a journey. It's a process. And it's it's like many other great causes that, that we're hearing a lot about now, you know, environmental causes that I can't remember who said it, but a quote that gets repeated often is, you know, you need everybody doing it, you know, okay, as opposed to a handful of people doing it excellently. And it's no different with this for me. We we all just need to try and, and, and work with good intent and, and listen to the feedback when we hear it, when we make a mistake. And it's change, the landscape is changing all the time as well. So what we say today... Um, and there's a number of phrases, thing, like the things that you said, the things that I put in my note, um, that tomorrow, that, that's, that's no longer the politically correct thing to say. So with something that is so rapidly changing in a world where as human beings we aren't that fastly adaptable, that's tough. And so we should give ourselves a bit of a break, um, give each other a bit of a break and just try and support each other through this and encourage rather than, than, than knock each other down when we do get it wrong. Yeah, and I, April, I think, you know, for me, transparency is so important here. Mm. I think if you are open and honest about where you are, where you want to be and how you're getting there, I think that takes a lot of the heat out. You know, in the absence of information, people will often make up their own realities and that can be really unhelpful, you know, and that's where, you know, rumours start and facts can be misrepresented and people misunderstand what's actually happening. So, you know, my my my, my one key word here is transparency. I think our in pursuit of progress plan, which is our ED&I strategy, is a good example of how we've taken this broad complex issue and broken it down into specific actions and measures to ensure we deliver progress. And, and this is freely available on the fa.com you know, so that we can be held to account, you know, publicly against where we want to get to and how we're, um, how we're progressing in, in getting there. But, you know, I talked about this code of governance, you know, the 65 requirements, some of those requirements are around transparency, you know, transparency of process in terms of appointing people onto these decision-making structures. Um, you know, transparency of what happens in board meetings and council meetings and making sure people can see the minutes and what's being discussed. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I just repeat transparency is, is, is key here. If you're open and honest, I think you take away a lot of the mischief that can be made mm -hmm. through misinterpretation of the facts um, or people trying to drive an unhelpful agenda. I think that's a great takeaway. Fantastic takeaway. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, but to wrap up, I think what we're saying is that we need to establish where we are in our organisations, set ourselves um, some very clear guidelines, um, be honest and transparent about what we find. Don't be, um, don't be offended by it. 
have open conversation and I loved what, April what you said there um, reminding us all that it's better that the majority of us are doing okay rather than just a few of us doing excellent Tim we always ask our guests to give us a 30 second overview what's the most important thing in 30 seconds for you about inclusivity um, I think you know the thing about being inclusive is making sure you can reach out and engage those communities that you need to serve and be aware that you will have blind spots that you are not aware of and the way to open out those blind spots and put a spotlight onto them is to have the greatest diversity you can have on your decision-making bodies um, that will enable you from a skills point of view from a gender point of view from an ethnicity from a religion from a belief you know point of view to reach out understand empathize with and engage those communities that you represent you know it's okay that you don't know everything but what you have to do is know that you don't know everything and do something about it and that comes through diverse recruitment onto the decision making structures wowza wowza that's fantastic and April, I want to give you um, the final say uh, on your reflection. And I always have to we'll follow these. <laughs> I always have to follow these really great uh, elevator pictures. Um, I'll keep mine really brief. Uh, brief. I think for me, uh, it's a note to something that you said earlier, Steve. But essentially, we, we are who we surround ourselves with, and therefore, the more diverse the people that we surround ourselves with, the more diverse we are as a human being. The more interesting we are. Uh, the, the broader decisions we'll be able to make, um, the, the, the more that we can give to, back to the world by being a, a richer, more diverse human being. So if, if we do it only for that, that reason, then you know, that's, that's got to be a winner as well. Thank you, Tim and April. This, is, this has been amazing for me. And I'm hoping for the listener, you've been able to take something away, maybe look at your, your own uh, companies and maybe your own company and be able to make some really great decisions to get the most out of your your own businesses. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, April. It's been absolutely fantastic. No, thank you. Good to chat, Tim. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, April. That was great. Thanks, Steve-O. You've been listening to the No Bull Podcast. Share your thoughts. Find us on LinkedIn and send us a message. And subscribe to get notified of future episodes.